0: Thank you for that good singing tonight. All right. We're back in the book of Genesis together this evening as we continue our series there in Genesis. We'll be finding our way now to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 and making our way down to verse 5. 3, 4, and 5 as we continue our journaling through the book of Genesis time. You know, it's really important that we lay a good foundation with the book of Genesis it's really important in life it's really important in the study of God's word if you get Genesis wrong you are really building off a shaky foundation you are building on sinking sand one person wrote and said you tell me what you believe about Genesis chapter 1 2 and 3 and I'll tell you what you believe about the rest of the Bible You are setting yourself up a foundation here in these early chapters. And my prayer is that as we go through this series, and we're going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is that you would develop a better Christian worldview so that you would understand the world in which we live with greater clarity. There are a lot of controversies that surround and are being kicked up around and about our culture, that are one by one answered in these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. We noted that last time when we uh, opened and introduced the series, but you can remember we talked about how Genesis answers questions about identity, gender, er, 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 both gender and just who you are or who you think you are, gender, uh, and, and, uh, and also it answers questions about marriage, you'll remember, it talks about that in those opening chapters, it talks about life and the beginning of life in those opening chapters, it even ventures into conversations about wars and fightings and all Kinds of things. When you come to turn on the news and you see people and talking heads debating issues, most probably many of the more moral issues can find their answers from a biblical worldview in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so I hope as we go through this that you are in some way and fashion developing a Christian worldview. Man, and by the way, in these opening verses, in these very opening verses, we see that the creative power of God is put on display. Man can move dirt around, man can build things, but only based on the materials that God has already created. uh, Science can only discover that which is what is already there. We saw that in those early two verses. Remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and where earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we saw, even in those first two verses, that everything that is, that all, all of the, the stuff of this universe was created right there. God had everything there. It was, it, it, we likened it even to a, a master potter. And he's got all the lump of clay right there in front of him on the wheel. It has no form yet. Whatever it is, it's just there, but it's all there. We also noted our fun Bible trivia answer for the rest of uh, time. You have Bible trivia with kids. You can always stump them. When was the first flood? And maybe they'll say it was Genesis 6. And we would say, no, the first flood was Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, right? In the beginning, you see it was there. The face of the waters were covering it and all those kind of things. But the truth that we really understood is that only God can create out of nothing. That's what we really came to understand. Now in the passages before us that are bracketed off, we are in day one of this creation account. And God, who dwells in unapproachable light, God who is light, according to 1 John 1, verse 5, now creates light. And it's very significant, that he starts with light. And we'll talk about that. Let's read the verses. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. As we do each time we come to passages like this, i like to help us out, hopefully, by giving us some headings by which we can kind of hang our hats and kind of understand what is going on. Uh, the first thing I want us to note is the Word of God. The Word of God. Notice what he does as he starts this. Oh, that was fun. Uh, at least we got some of our lights. Notice what he does as we start. And, I want you to notice the word and, because we've been going through the book of Mark. And. What do we immediately recognize, even in the book of Mark? Because and is a favorite of Mark's. And it's going to be the same reason here. What is is indicated when we read the word and? It's immediately preceding what just took place. So, immediately after what just happened, the word and indicates it is on the heels of... So God created everything, he put it there, and then immediately, and notice, and immediately it says that right away, God said, let there be light. After all, in chapter one, God is the only actor in this entire chapter. If you had a fun exercise, and maybe I'd encourage you to do it in your own time, if you took out a pen and paper, And you went through and just took out a pen and you circled every time God's name comes up in the opening verses of chapter 1. You would come to discover that God is referenced 32 times in these 31 verses. Everything begins with God. God is the great initiator. Anybody that was here last time when we were with us, what, what is this name for God that's being used? Elohim. Elohim. We looked at that last time. And, and we remembered that this is a plural name. And there were two aspects to that plurality that we referred to. what, what is those two? What are those two aspects? He's almighty, so it's going to talk about, this is what many refer to as a majestic plural. This is a majestic plural, And there's another aspect that I actually subscribe to. His triunity, his triunity as well, or the trinity is referred to even there in that name God. So we see that the trinity of God is involved, but ultimately we understand that God immediately is the great initiator of creation. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book many years ago called God is there, and God is not silent. You haven't read it. The title alone should perk your curiosity. It's by Francis Schaeffer. I think the title nails it right there. God is there, and God is not silent. He is not silent. He is there. He is there, and he is speaking. And God speaks with divine imperative, and he speaks with supreme authority. And when he speaks, he says, let there be, let there be, right away he says, let there be light. Now the purpose of declaring there to be light was not so that God could see what he was doing. I hope you realize that. God sees in darkness. God sees what you and I cannot see. In fact, the psalmist, if you want a verse for that, Psalm 139 Psalm 139, verse 12 says, even the darkness, this is Psalm 139, verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day, darkness and light are alike to you. So God says, let there be light, not for himself. Why did he create light? for the creation. You can't have life without light. Not just for man, although it's certainly for man as well, but you can't have life without light. You have to have light. This cannot be life without light and the distinctives that it brings. And so he creates light, not for himself. God is not and I emphasize this and will emphasize this each time we come to the days of creation, God is not created because he is lacking something. God is not lacking anything. None of what he is creating is because of what he is lacking. Ultimately, why is God creating? To To bring glory to himself. Revelation uh, talks about that in Revelation 4, verse 12. All of these things were created for his glory. So this is the command of God. And this is God who spoke so long ago, he still speaks, and when God speaks, immediately says, he talks, and we see, number one, the word of the Lord. Before we move off the word of the Lord, I want you to note that every time you open your Bibles, the same God who said, let there be light, now says things like, you should have no other God before me. And the same kind of authority he used to say, let there be light, he now speaks as he writes to you in his word. God always speaks without equivocation or stuttering. Whenever God speaks, it's always, always a command. So the word of the Lord what we come to emphasize is this is a command, as is going to be the truth throughout the rest of the pages of scripture. That's the word of the Lord. But number two, we see, not only the word of the Lord, but number two, just by way of heading, we see the work of God. Number two, we see the work of God. And the word of the Lord is a command that sets into motion the work of God that will, in fact, take place because anything God says will happen. And so God says, and there was light. After all, right It says right away it says, there was light. Light, of course there was light, because God commanded it to be so. Right away we know there's no evolution of light. It would be unbelief to cling to a myth like that. As soon as God said, let there be light, there was light. Now we have to think for a moment. The sun will not be created until what day of creation? the fourth day of creation. So God apparently doesn't have to have the sun to have light in the universe. God, nor, nor does God have to have the reflection of the moon or the stars or the planets to have light. Light exists before them. And all this is necessary for God to command that there be light. All that is necessary for God to be, command that there be light is that God just say so. After all, if we're kind of continuing to add to our references this evening, uh, we could continue and say that in Psalm, in Psalm 33, verse 6, the Bible says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by, his, by the breath of his mouth all of their hosts. Now you note how God makes the light. It's very different than anything else. Actually, all the rest of creation is made in one way, and then one aspect of creation is made distinctly different. Notice how God makes light. How does God make light? He speaks, and it's so. Now, how does God make man? He forms man out of the dust of the ground, and then what else? He breathes life into his nostrils. So again, in Psalm, same Psalm 33, in Psalm 33, verse nine, for he spoke and it was done. So all other aspects of creation, including light, is done by the voice of God. But when it comes to man, there's an intimate involvement there. And I know we're hastening past our verses to talk about man, but I think there is wisdom and understanding and acknowledging that there's something very important going on here. What is conveyed by the distinctions of the creation, created order that man has this intimate involvement with God and everything else is just created by voice? What, what is an obvious connotation that should be seen when we read that in the creation account? There's a relationship. There's an obvious, design. what else do we see? Man is made in God's image. What else do we see? Man is set apart. You could say man is the crown jewel of creation. There is is something special about man that is clearly evident in the very created account that we see. But nonetheless, God spoke and it was so. Now why is it that that's something people don't want to believe? Why don't people want to believe that God can speak and create? Actually, the Bible tells us why. And the reason why is they don't want to fear the Lord. Listen to Psalm 33 again. I'll just read verses eight and nine. Let all the earth, this is Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. To acknowledge that God can speak light into existence is also to acknowledge that you should fear God. Why doesn't man want to acknowledge that God can be the creator through his work? Because they don't want to fear God. That's why. we hasten forward and we use another heading perhaps to help us this evening. Not only have we seen the, the word of God and the work of God, but number three, if we keep it alliterated, uh, we'll look at, the will of God, and we'll spend a little bit of time here than we did before. I want you to notice that what happens now, beginning in verse 4, it says, God saw something about what took place, and God saw this. I want you to notice first that word saw. The word that's used here, the word saw, literally means to size up you could say, or you could use an accounting term and you could say it means to audit or you could use a medical term and it could mean to examine it. God saw it, so he, he audited it, he, he, he examined it, he saw everything. Right? This is like an artist having just thrown the first paint onto the canvas and then stepping back and he looks at his art, which I could never do, and say, that looks really good, right? You wouldn't say that about my art, all right? But, uh, nor would I even try, anyways. (laughs) But there you have it. He steps back, he examines it, he does an audit, a review, and this is very good. Now, why is this very good? When it comes to light, what is being demonstrated about light, particularly, after all, it's It's referenced again, this light, particularly this light was what was very good. What is it about light that's conveyed which will actually become a foundational thing we see throughout the rest of Scripture? Listen to this verse, 1 John 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So as God chooses to first be the initiator on the stage of history... God chooses to represent himself throughout the pages of Scripture most often by light. I'll give you some examples. In the Old Testament, it was light that was a pillar and a cloud, a pillar by day and fire by night. Most would acknowledge that that was a form of light even by day. It was the presence of God when Moses said in Exodus 33, show me your glory, and God manifested himself as a bright, shining light Remember what happened to Moses' face when he came down? It was glowing. Uh, It is represented in his beauty and purity and holiness. We even see it on the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened to Christ in that moment that the disciples beheld? There's this light. Can you think of other examples of this manifestation of God, of light that we see in Scripture? Scripture. The burning bush would be another example that was on fire, but it did not burn. On and on. Jesus said something about himself. I am the light of the world. So God is light. We could actually say, honestly, from Scripture, we could almost say that God, that it was very good we see it in verse 18. If we come down to verse 18, it says, And God saw that it was very good. Come over to verse 21. It says in verse 21, God saw that it was very good. Verse 25 in your Bibles, it says, And God saw that it was very good. Verse 31. Come over to verse 31. And the evening and the morning, and it was very good. So this is what God will acknowledge as he comes together. Linda? Question. Yes. true then it became very good true and we will emphasize that when we come to the end of this passage but we'll get there she noted that at the end it finally says very good and you're absolutely right linda and it says was good and then finally at the end he does say very good but god saw that and everything he does acknowledgment is everything he does he does so perfectly his wisdom is perfect, his judgments are perfect, his essence is perfect. He is ultimately light, and light in essence is perfect. So we see the work of word of God, the work of God, the will of God. I want you to see number four, the way of God, the way of God. God is going to do something. He's going to put something into control that only he could do. Look what he does. This is the, the way of God. And we can see it highlighted now, after he said it was good, that says God separated the light from the darkness. Oh, we acknowledges is what God creates, God controls. God does not just create something and then walk away from it. Or like the song, I'm not going to sing it for you, He's got the whole world in his hands, right? Okay, that's simple, but it's true. It's not as if God creates, puts it, spins it on his desk like a top, and walks away from it. The word separate, and this word that he now uses, the word separated, and I'll, I'll try to, maybe if we can try to draw a line to it, the word separated here is it means to divide, literally. It means to divide, or to, to make sharp, Distinction. I forgot to put the word make, but you can see that there, to make a sharp distinction. The very same word that's used here, the very same word used separated, we find in two other very particular passages. The same word is used in Exodus 26. What's going on in Exodus 26? Well, they're building the temple. And as they're building the temple, they are told that they need to separate, same word, The holy place from the holy of holies. And there's a clear line of separation. You don't go inside the holy of holies. You stay out of that. There's a line that's been drawn. Oh, what happened to you if you went inside the holy of holies at that point in history? you die. Remember the high priest and he went in once or twice a year? What he wore at the bottom of his garments? Bells. Why did he wear bells on his garments? And a rope onto his ankle? So they could listen, and if they stopped hearing the bells, that meant he's dead, and they can pull him out with the rope tied to his ankle. All right. When they say separated, there's a sharp distinction there. It's used another time. Same word, it's used in Leviticus 10. In Leviticus 10, and of course the book on holiness, and in Leviticus 10, God draws and uses the word separated, and says there's a separation between holy and unholy. So when I, when I see a separation between light and darkness, what is conveyed immediately by that word is a distinction even between physical and spiritual, as well, physical as well as, I should say, spiritual. There's a distinction. By the way, this, is, this should inform your gospel witness, right? I know sometimes we use something like the wordless brook, and we've got a black page that shows to represent sin in a white page, and I would say don't do that. That's not what the Bible conveys. The Bible doesn't convey sin as black, it conveys sin as dark. There is a distinction and one that we should be careful with. By the way, not to totally throw the wordless book under the bus, because it, bu, bu, it can be used in some ways, but I will just say the God who conveys his truth to us through words, just think about that for a moment. That's how God conveys his truth to us, through words words. We have wordless books. That just seems kind of weird to me. Just just think about it for a moment and process that in your own brain. But not only does God do this physical light and separation, but God also from the beginning, from the beginning, there was a distinction between what was good and what was bad. From the very beginning, there was always a distinction. This is something that agnostics will wrestle with, right? they say, well, well, you know, culturally, the culture kind of decides what is good and what is bad. From the beginning, there was a distinction between evil and good. Come with me to Genesis chapter two. We'll come back to Genesis one. We'll, we'll be in Genesis two, I know, later, but just come with me to Genesis chapter two and come to verse 17. Notice, this is from the beginning, there's a distinction But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. So from the beginning, there was this tree of the knowledge of two distinct pairings. Good, evil. So when I come back to chapter one again, and I read that he separated light from darkness, there is both in that and conveyed a physical separation, light and darkness, and as well as an unfolding of God's intention, as it always has been, that doesn't change his mind, which means that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever goes both ways. So he's always had an understanding of what is good and what is evil. From the beginning, God has drawn a sharp, straight line of separation. That is the way of God according to the will of God, by the work of God, according to the word of God. That's always been the way God operates. God operates according to this. So we saw the word of God, and we saw, again, that not only the word of God, but we saw the work of God, and the will of God, and the way of God, and just to keep it alliterated, I'm gonna say, we'll call it the weight of God. And what I what I mean to convey by that is the, is the the essence of his power seen here. And I want you to see the control. Really, what I'm trying to convey is the control. And we see it here in verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so God immediately is going to name these elements. He's going to name them day, he's going to name them night. And even to this day, right, when I name something, it is an exercise of authority over it. Anybody have a pet? We have a pet. All right. Uh, we had a dog growing up. His name was—I think I've told you his name before. His name was Jacob Kirby. He had a middle name Phelps, right? And uh, his name—he went by Jake. Now we got him. The story is not to get off track, but I did. I, I played. All of us kids in our family, we had to start taking piano lessons in second grade, and then we would take piano lessons through to sixth grade and then in sixth grade you could decide to continue to take piano lessons and add an instrument, not take piano lessons, but then take a different instrument, or continue to take piano lessons and not have another instrument. Other way, either way, you still had to play an instrument. Right? That was the rule in our house. I did not like piano as a kid particularly because as a fourth grader, or maybe as a fifth grader, my piano teacher made me play the wedding march for a recital, and that was, that was really, that was, too, that was cruel, all right? And, uh, but my parents, we were, in a, we were in a music academy that would grade you, and they said, if you get a, an A for like three months or whatever, you can get a dog. My dad, in a moment of weakness, told me that, thinking, you've never ever gotten an A in any piano lesson, ever, so this will never happen, And I proved them wrong. (laughs) And I got that dog. And you better believe I was going to name that dog. But when I got Dad, we went to the SPCA. And we got, it was actually a purebred um, Great Swiss Mountain dog. Which is a real dog. It's like a 120 pound dog. It's a real dog. And it was already named. It was already named. His name was Jake. But it wanted to be my dog. So my brother and I compiled together. And there was a baseball player for the Minnesota Twins. Some of you may know, named Kirby Puckett. And we had just gone to a Twins game in Minneapolis because that's where my mom is from, and we caught my brother had caught a home run ball from Kirby Puckett. And that was pretty cool. And uh, so Jake became Jacob Kirby Phelps, and that was our dog. That was our dog. Now, I give that all long illustration to let you know when you name something, you're conveying an ownership of it. God names the day and the night. God alone has the authority to name them. Now, when I have the authority, when God has the authority, I should say, to name the night and to name the day, what is being conveyed also is that God alone has authority over everything that happens at night. And God alone has authority over everything that happens during the day. Think about this scripturally. Even the fall of Satan came Crawling over the pages of human history in Genesis 3, nevertheless, God was in control. Martin Luther once said, the devil is still God's devil. What he means by that is, God is still in control. God will use the devil according to his own purposes. Like a broken stick drawing a line, God can still use evil men to accomplish his purposes. Why? Why can he do that? He's the creator. He's God. He is providentially in control. So God manifests his own sovereignty over the created order by naming light and darkness. Whatever happens at night is still under the control of God. What happens during the day, it's still under the control of God. And note, there was no one here to hear this sermon. (laughs) Think about that. This is all happening. We can say pre-people, and when I say pre-people, I'm not talking about junior hires, right? <laughs> can we get that one. No, nope. all right. The junior hires are pre-people. Nobody. All right. Anyways, <laughs> there's nobody here to hear this. So why is God doing all this? Right now, for Himself, for His own glory. God named it for his own pleasure because he he revels in himself. Look what it says in verse five. And the evening, and there was morning. Again, and there was, right after he named it now, there was evening, and there was morning. There was a first evening because of what obvious reason? Why does the night have to come first? What's that? There was no light, all right? That'd be darkness first, Okay, right? So if you ever wonder, what came first, night or day? Night, nighttime, all right? Evening came first. And I want you to notice something. It says in our ESV translation on the screen, it says that first day. And if you have a King James or a New King James, New King James version, if you have even a CSB They all say first day. NIV as well, it still says first day. But if you have a NASB translation, the NASB says one day. I actually like that one better. Verse 5 does not simply end by saying day one. It's the reverse. It says one day. Do you see how important this is? Right. It's not saying. It's not meant to convey that this is day one. We know it's day one. You know how we know it's day one? Because this is day two. (laughs) That's it. All right. Why one day? This is telling us, yeah, Kurt? A this identifies a 24-hour period. Not only do we have evening and morning to identify a 24-hour period, but this is not day one. It's not, and even when it says first day, they're, they're agreeing with the order as the Hebrew gives it. But if I, I believe it's better conveyed into English as one day. There's a Hebrew singular followed by day. One day. This is meant to convey a 24-hour period. That's what he's talking about. This is very, very significant, is it not? This is very significant. But how do we answer arguments that say the earth is old? There's, There's all kinds of those. But what about carbon dating of billions of years? How do we answer that? Because carbon dating, goodbye. There you go. <laughs> Bob? So you have to have a premise to start with. Okay. You make one up. Yeah, you make one up. And what would be our premise? That would say that would that would give you some of the uh, layers and rock layers and all that? What would be our premise that say that's where we're not making it up, but that's where we see all these rock layers and fossils and the like. <coughs> what are we talking about? The flood. the flood, right? The flood's gonna give it to us. Our answer comes to Genesis 3. And the flood, for us, is not figurative water. <laughs> okay? This is a literal water. What about dinosaurs and who used to roam the earth? What are we going to do about that? How are we going to answer that? The flood. What's that? Yeah, you can go to Job. <laughs> Talk about it. Bob? How about a six-foot diameter foot on a lunar lander? There you go. I've got all kinds of, I'm, I'm asking the engineers in this crowd, so I'm in dangerous water here. You guys know what I'm talking about. What about, to dig a little bit deeper, oil and coal in the ground? Because doesn't it take a long time to get oil and coal in the ground? Well, there's two ways to answer that. The flood does help us, but I want you to help you a little bit further. And, it, and we've already kind of alluded to this. You ever heard the expression, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Right? We actually know what came first. You know what came? I don't have to wonder about it. The chicken. the chicken. When God created, God created a mature earth. You ever heard, this? did Adam have a belly button? Right? <laughs> no, I guess not, right? <laughs> God created a mature adult. So it would stand to reason that when God created earth, he created a mature earth with those resources. That's one argument, the flood being another. But how about a gotcha verse? Because this is the gotcha verse that everybody's, getting, well, I, obviously I'm saying it's a 24-hour, one period of day, but here's a gotcha verse. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Listen to it. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. How many of you heard that in kind of an argument? Of twenty? Okay. Doesn't this verse open the door to a period of time longer than 24 hours? Could one day of creation actually be a lot longer? It is showing God's uh, timelessness. It is showing God's timelessness. There's two things you can think about. Number one, it does not say a day is a thousand years, it says a day is like a thousand years. Take our hermeneutics class. This is called comparison. Okay? In the Old Testament, too. Whenever a number, and this is very important for this verse, in the Old Testament, whenever a number is assigned to a day, anytime time a number is assigned to a day, it always refers to 24 hours. Always. And one day is defined by light for part of it and dark for the next part of it. Always. Always. So when it comes to the end of this verse, I actually, I actually don't prefer first day, Justin. Wouldn't another Godverse gotcha come just a few verses later where it talks about him creating the heavens and firmament? Yeah. So we have no sun here. Yep. So the 24-hour is still, it's, it's in process. Yeah. But they have people, a stupid person would tell you that it can't be a 24-hour day yet because there's no sun. Yep. Keeping the morning good be? and I'd say, well, Christ is the sun. Our God is the sun. Yeah. So yeah. To flip them in order absolutely they move themselves around. I'm I'm a graduate of a college that for years was day age theory. Um, I don't know if anybody heard that. I'm sorry, not, they they believed in gap theory. They they had a and they believed that there was the gap theory basically says that there was basically right here between verses one and two accounts for millions of years. And uh, the college I graduated from for most of its history agreed with that. Um, and one one particular book that actually changed most people's minds in that regard was a book called The Genesis Flood by John Whitcomb and Henry Moritz. John Whitcomb was the theologian, Henry Moritz was the scientist. Actually, if you go out into our lobby and uh, there's little devotional books below the My Daily Breads, there's another devotional books and the other, the other devotional books are by the Creation Institute, which is Henry Moritz's ministry that helps produce those. Bob? Yeah, a day example is the Mount St. Helen Yeah, yeah, Mount St. Helen would be a modern-day example, absolutely. Yeah. Now, as we close, I want you to take with you your Bibles and go with me, because we, we went through this book, but I, I want us to see something. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because ultimately, and I'll put it on the screen, and I'll put it in white so you can tell we're in a different text here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Ultimately, our goal should be, as we come to any passage of Scripture, I want to see God. That's what I want to do. I I want to come to this passage, and I want to see God. I want to learn about God. Who is God? Uh, Many times when we come to the Scriptures, many mistakenly come to the Scriptures and say, what can I learn? That is not the question you should come to the Scriptures about. What can I learn about God is a better question. What is this teaching me? And so as we close, come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to pick up our reading in verse 3. Pick up our reading in verse 3. It says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There's a darkness that is on the face of the earth. There's a veil there. And in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is their blindness. They are stumbling through darkness. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake now notice for god who said let light shine out of darkness sound familiar this is this is this is exactly talking about day 1 of cre- er, creation has shown in our hearts to give the light Of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is being pictured here? When we were without Christ, we were in darkness. We were blinded by a real devil, we couldn't even see ourselves. We were in total darkness. Ever been the difference between darkness and total darkness? So dark you can't see your hand in front of your face type of darkness, okay? Total darkness. I saw a video the other day. There was a, they've, they've invented what they believe to be the blackest paint ever. Anybody seen this? That's pretty cool. And uh, they, this guy bought a bunch of it and painted an entire room inside his garage with this paint. And then videoed going into it. It is Weird. I don't know. It, it it looks like he just disappears into a vortex. You no longer see any depth at all. It's just, it is, you have to look it up. It is weird. I don't know how else to describe it. But that's the kind of, if you could, that's the kind of darkness that we're talking about. You're You are totally, completely in darkness. And God said, let there be light. And it's like the light's turned on. This tells us about the new birth does not take place somehow, how the new birth does not take place. When you were saved, when you come to a saving knowledge of Christ, it is not, this is what this passage is showing us, it is not a progression of time. Right? Like you're just gradually working your way to salvation. That's not how salvation works. Salvation, Paul is saying, works like how God turned the lights on in the universe. And when God said it, it was so. So just as Genesis 1-3 took place in a moment, so it is with new birth. We are regenerated in a split second. I know there's all kinds of debates about Ortis Salutis and all that kind of fun stuff, but some of it almost, in my opinion, amounts to debates about how many angels that dance on the head of a pin. Because of verses like this one, this is exactly what Paul is saying. Once I was lost, as the songwriter says, now I see that's what's going on. And now you may not be able to point to the day and the hour and the second. And some of you you say, I don't know if I remember dates. It's not about dates when it comes to Christ but it is about this change that takes place in a moment in an instant of time I think there's a song about that as well isn't there so how does this happen has God said let there be light and commanded the gospel light to shine on you For some of you, you you can distinctly remember a time that you were familiar with the pages of Scripture, you'd read it before, and then you got saved, and it's almost like all the lights turned on. And all of a sudden, everything that you'd heard before now becomes real to you. What happened in your life in that instant? The Holy Spirit. The lights turned on. That's exactly what's going on. There's a difference then between darkness and light that's continually drawn and paired out and illustrated in scripture, so it points us all to